you're listening to episode 15 of the In The City Podcast. dedicated to advancing hope, crafting purpose, and shaping transformation. Your host is the Reverend Dr. Jonathan G. Smith. Whether you are working from home, in the car, or listening at work, this podcast is dedicated to helping you live out your faith in the city. And now here's your host, Jonathan. And welcome to another episode of In The City. My name is Jonathan Smith, and my goal is to help you design your life with hope, purpose, and transformation. You know, today I'm going to do something that I have been wanting to do for quite a while, and that is introducing you to the faith tradition that is Anglicanism, or Anglican, I don't like to call it ism, but Anglican the Anglican Church, that is, introducing you to the faith tradition that I walk in. And I say it's been a while and uh, I've been wanting to do this. Uh, and frankly, I've been wanting to do it even since I launched this podcast. But frankly, I've just struggled uh, expressing or I have struggled expressing to folks just exactly what being Anglican is. And the reason for that is if you know anything about the Anglican Church or you've been around or you've you know read different magazines, etc., on the subject of Anglicanism, the one thing that you'll know about the Anglican Church, if it registers for you, and that is that it is a church divided. It is divided in many, many, many different ways, not only on theology, not only on expressions, but on morals. Uh, it is divided politically. I mean, it really is uh, an incredibly difficult thing to define. And so today, what I want to do is what I want to more than anything is I want to share with you my heart for the Anglican Church to understand what has attracted me to it uh, to take you back to a couple of years ago uh, believe it or not six years ago when I first stepped foot into an Anglican Church but even more important than that is I want to introduce you to a stream of Anglicanism that is Reformed Evangelical Anglican being a Reformed Evangelical Anglican introduce you to that stream and to try to express to you what being a Reformed Evangelical Anglican is. And I want to do that by actually sharing with you a um, an interview that I did. Actually, it wasn't just an interview with me, um, but it was an interview uh, with several of my colleagues on another podcast called The Anglican Connection. And it was an interview where we had the opportunity to sit down with, Dr., with Archbishop Dr. Peter Jensen, who was from Sydney, Australia. And he sat down with us and we really talked about what being a Reformed Evangelical Anglican is. And, and that's what I want to share with you today, to introduce you to this stream. Because frankly, it's not a stream in North America that is widely known. Although, for those of us who are actually in it, I mean, sometimes we, uh, you know, we're a quite small group, but we stay connected with each, other, with each other on Facebook. But when I go out and talk with people, particularly, you know, evangelicals and other faiths, and other, or not other faiths, but in other um, persuasions, you might say, um, 
they look at me and they're like, we're not really sure who you are or what you are. Now, here is the most important detail of why I'm doing this today. Many of you will recall, those of you know me personally, and those of you don't, but many of you will recall that actually I was raised Southern Baptist. Now, this year, I'm turning 40 years old, and I spent up to half my life, that is all the way up through 20, even really all the way up into uh, the late 20s, perhaps even 30, um, where being a Southern Baptist was the foundation of my Christian identity, of my faith, of everything, and really my understanding of the gospel. And so being a Southern Baptist, there's things that I'm just naturally sensitive to. And there are a lot of Southern Baptists who have left the Southern Baptist Church and have become Episcopalian, have become Anglican. And if you actually Google that, you'll find articles on it. And that's fine. But for me, that was a major part in my life. So a lot of my friends who are Southern Baptists, you know, one of the things that they, you know, always say, you know, how did you, you know, why did you convert? Are you even a Christian? In fact, one of the things that was so funny to me one time was somebody asked me, well, are you still a Christian? And I'm like, yes, I'm still a Christian. And and I still believe in justification by faith alone. I believe in the transforming power of Jesus Christ and all of those incredibly evangelical doctrines. But there was something about the Anglican church that was drawing me. And uh, you know, if six years ago, I couldn't have told you what was the draw to the Anglican church, but there was something deep down that was really uh, pulling on me. And it's taking me a number of years to finally get to the point as to, to know exactly what flavor, if we want to use that, it's kind of a crude illustration, but to understand what kind of fl- what flavor of Anglican I am. Now, here's the one thing that I want to encourage you to do. If you have no idea what I'm talking about or no context of this, just Google Anglicanism and or, or go to Wikipedia and, and look up Anglicanism. And one of the things you're going to find out is that it is a movement. It's broad. It's diverse. There's roughly 50 to 80 million. Anglicans worldwide that represent different cultures, uh, ethnicities, etc., uh, with a wide variety of people. And so naturally, with that kind of diversity prevalent in a movement like this, you're going to find different emphasis, etc. But there are certain unifying principles, unifying ideas that go uh, across all of these different divides that really truly make us Anglican. Now, what that is, a lot of people will debate, but there is a stream that is the Reformed Evangelical stream that I want to introduce you today, and I think it's really critical. So, I think the best way to do this is not for me, who's relatively new uh, to talk about this Reformed Evangelical tradition, but it actually is to hear from somebody who has spent a lifetime working in the church particularly in this case, the Church of Australia, and more specifically in the Sydney Diocese in New South Wales. Um, But to hear from a man who has been a leader, not just in a local church, but in a diocese, but also in a country, but now even worldwide, to hear from him his perspective after a lifetime of ministry, to hear his perspective on what being a Reformed Evangelical Anglican is. And so, yeah, you can probably tell I'm just I'm super excited about this. I'm, I'm very stoked about what this is going to be. So, let me get into something that I think, before we get into these excerpts uh, of what I want to share with you. You know, what attracted me originally to the Anglican heritage 
was the rich tradition of thinkers. Now, I'm a thinking guy. In fact, I took a strengths fighter test one time and it said that, you know, ideation, that's ideas. It's just generating ideas that that was like my top strength. And you know what? I can totally relate to that. I love ideas. But what attracted me to the Anglican church was because I noticed that there were other incredible thinkers like J.I. Packer, John Stott, even C.S. Lewis, uh, to some extent, who were identifying themselves as Anglicans. And while I didn't know them uh, personally, I benefited from their thinking. Then something happened, and as I was praying about being Anglican and praying about aligning myself with the Anglican church, there was a New Testament professor of mine that I was sitting under on a Reformed Theological Seminary. And he is the one who turned my mind because he he was talking about that while he was studying in Oxford in England, uh, he kept quoting from the Book of Common Prayer and he kept talking about the benefit that he had had in the Anglican Church. And I thought, you know what? If this guy can say such positive things about the Anglican Church, then I really need to take a hard look at it. And that's exactly what ended up happening. And so I prayed about it and eventually I felt the Lord leading in that in you know in that direction. And so, you know, what I could say is that in the last six years, I've been in an Anglican season where I've been, it's really been marked by learning and discovery as well as service, serving in the church. But, and here is the thing, it's also been a time where I, I landed in this landscape of the Anglican church and it's been in a time of tremendous upheaval. I mean, you know, it's been in tremendous upheaval globally and particularly here in the United States. And even though there's just been this uh, upheaval, you know, that's really splitting the church, and we'll get into a little bit of that today, but even though there's this great upheaval, there's been so much of it that has still remained um, attractive to me and has really remained persuasive to me and has been drawing to me. And that has been this evangelical Anglican expression, this what I like to call gospel-centered Anglicanism. So today I'm going to share with you these excerpts from this interview that my colleagues and I conducted with Dr. Jensen. And I think what, if there's anything, my goal here is to really introduce you into Reformed Evangelical Anglicanism. All right, so let's get into this. There are eight clips that I want to share with you, and don't worry, they're not very long, just a few of them um, that go over a few minutes, but there's eight clips here that I think are, are tremendous. And so the very first one that I want to do is just, it is a clip where Dr. Jensen has this opportunity to introduce himself as the Archbishop, and or to introduce himself really as, uh, you know, as a Christian. And what's remarkable is about what you're going to hear, and this may surprise you, but you're going to hear who was actually used by the Lord to bring Dr. Jensen to faith. Let's take a listen. Sure, I'd be glad to. Uh, I grew up in Sydney, Australia. Now, Australia is, as Garrison Keillor once said, the furthest place you can go where they still speak English. And it's a very safe place. And uh, we welcome Americans particularly there, particularly as you saved our bacon during the Second World War with a bit of help from us. But I have to tell you there's some dangerous animals in Australia. If you don't want to mix with noxious spiders and snakes, don't come. But on the other hand, I've never seen them, so do come. 
Sydney's a lovely city and you'd be very welcome there of course and you'd find it a lot of fun. I grew up there, um, my uh, family was three boys, mum and dad. Uh, uh, my education was unfortunate. Uh, the only time I ever heard my father swear was when he saw my last school report and uh, it went down from there. I started to study law at the University of Sydney, the law school, and after two attempts at first year, I was excluded from the school. Uh, I then enrolled in liberal arts and failed that as well, um, and uh, really didn't have much of a place to go. Failure, I think, is immensely important. It's been very helpful to me over the years, and educationally, I would say it was probably as good as doing law, which I found fairly uninteresting. In 1959, when I was 15 years old, the churches all welcomed, thank God, uh, Mr. Billy Graham to town. Uh, and Mr. Graham came, uh, his impact in Sydney and in Australia generally was immense. It was just at the time of a peak of church going uh, and thousands and thousands of people gathered to hear him. Uh, in our city, uh, he was there for four weeks uh, I went on the first Sunday, he preached on Noah and the Ark. The things that impressed me, Mr. Graham impressed me. Now, I don't mean he impressed me by being tall, good looking, etc. but you know, I can close my eyes and I can still see him and I can still hear him say, the Bible says, and it was that. It was the authority of the Bible, which I already accepted, but didn't apply, which by the Holy Spirit, became like a, an arrow that pierced the heart. And when he gave the invitation at the end, I was more or less first on my feet and down I went uh, to the front uh, in a, an outward action of receiving Christ, as so many of my friends did. That crusade had a huge impact on our city and uh, at my job as Archbishop, when I was the Archbishop, I would go around to the churches and tell the story and always at every church there were people who had been converted during the Billy Graham crusade, either 59, 68 or 79 when he came three times. The last crusade meeting was 153,000 people. I doubt there's ever been a crowd that big in Sydney. There are only two million people. So it was a great movement of God's spirit with huge consequences for many of us at a time when in the next decade, the, uh, the, the sea of faith ebbed and ebbed and ebbed. I thank God for Billy Graham. Uh, one of the thing, Mr. Graham said one night, we need people in the ministry. And that was a, a defining moment again for me. And doing law or doing it, it just didn't interest me at all because in my heart I wanted to go into the ministry. And so uh, uh, to my father's relief, I eventually enrolled at Moore College, which is our local Anglican training college in Sydney, although we train other denominations as well. And I started to pass things eventually and uh, managed to get through the course at Moore College, was ordained, worked in a university church near, nearby, the University of Sydney, under an extraordinary man called Paul Barnett. At that time, the evangelicalism we experienced was until the 19, late 50s, was a traditional evangelicalism, uh, particularly in preaching, say, where you take a verse and preach the verse. Uh, but in the 1960s, under various influences, part of it was John Stott, but not only John Stott, uh, we were challenged to preach passages, not verses. And this was a significant change, and indeed several things happened to us to prepare us for the, for the growing secularism. One was a, a new way of thinking about church, 
but also this this new way of preaching. And the man I was uh, working with at uh, St. Barnabas Broadway, as it was called, um, Paul Barnett, uh, was modelling expository preaching in a way which filled the church. Uh, and so there were extraordinary days at the end of the 60s and early 70s as, uh, as we were laying the foundations for maintaining Christian faith in the churches when the world had turned against us. Now, did you catch what influenced him? Here it was, Dr. Jensen, he's introducing himself, and he says that the man who was influential in bringing him to Christ was none other than the great evangelist evangelical of the 20th century, Dr. Billy Graham. You know, when I first heard uh, Dr. Jensen say that, you know, that actually just, it just blew me away. I mean, it just, it really just blew me away because I can remember as a little boy, I was probably no older than six or seven years old, but I remember Dr. Billy Graham coming to the city of Orlando and leading a crusade. And I remember being in um, the Citrus Bowl, which is the local uh, football stadium here in the city of Orlando. I remember being there and sitting and listening to him. And I remember it just being this huge, huge, important event, but I was far too young really to understand what it was. But the thing that Dr. Jensen shared here was that it was when Dr. Graham said, the Bible says. And what you're going to find out through these next points that Dr. Jensen actually makes is that the issue of the Reformed Evangelical Anglican is the centrality of Holy Scripture. That is the centrality of the Word of God to our faith. And as you're going to hear in this next clip, it is the emphasis on the Bible as the center of a person's journey that is so critical. So let's get into this next clip where Dr. Jensen shares what is important or what is important to him in terms of the Christian faith. Take a listen to this. Uh, I had a remarkable teacher who was the principal of the college. His name was Broughton Knox. He's not well known uh, in, the, in the world outside, but he was a truly remarkable man. He too studied at Oxford in the 50s and he, did, he too did a Reformation uh, study and impacted no, no, no other person than Fitzallison, Bishop Fitzallison, whose book also impacted me. It was a sort of funny succession here um, uh, of people who were looking at faith, at sin and its consequences, and of course at the work of Christ. Uh, one of the things which uh, Dr. Knox was famous for was not so much his lectures, but rather his ability to provoke and then answer questions. And uh, I learned from him a, a sort of a method of education in which my greatest hope is that people will express themselves, that is to say, mm, not from somewhere inside themselves, but rather express what the Bible says for themselves, uh, begin to own what the Bible says. Uh, Dr. Knox's method involved not so much teaching us courses on Karl Barth or Pannenberg or Calvin for that matter, I don't think we did any courses on them, but rather teaching us what the Bible said in the light of what Barth and Calvin and the others said. So all the time his focus was on the knowledge of God. How do you know God? 
and what does the knowledge of God taught in sacred scripture, how does that impact on your life? All right. Did you catch what he said? That is, is that what is important to him when people are listening to or when people are learning about the Bible, I love what he said there. He says that what's important to him is that people express what the Bible says for themselves. That is, that they own what the Bible says. Now, if the Bible is the good news of Jesus Christ, it is the gospel message from the beginning to the end, the entire thing is pointing to this, to the work and person of Jesus Christ, then what it tells you is, is that you must understand what the Bible says. In other words, that what what bothers me sometimes about Anglicans, uh, particularly uh, from those who have been in a long time, is this confusion that Anglicanism is all about the prayer book and, you know, the liturgy and the smells and the bells and all of those things. Yes, those things are part of it, but they are not the central central aspect of being Anglican. The central aspect of being an Anglican is the word of God. And so, for me, when I heard Dr. Jensen say that, I said, okay, finally, yes, we have a leader, we have an archbishop who is standing up and saying that the Bible is the the primary concern of being Anglican. And I thought, you know, that is so refreshing because at times it feels like that message is lost. And, you know, I love how he said that, that that is, is that the people will own what the Bible says, but... The thing that really strikes me about this whole thing is this, and that is, is that if you're going to understand what the Bible says, if you're going to own it, then you have to read it. And it's not just reading it on Sundays and listening to a lectionary, but understanding the rich and biblical theology of the Bible. And so when he says that the Bible is at the center of a person's journey, the center of the faith, and that was incredibly refreshing. Now, if the Bible is so important, then we also want to know something else. And that is, you know, Reformed evangelicals, sometimes that they can have this, you know, idea that we're, we're angry, uh, particularly here in the United States. You know, Reformed folks are angry all the time. But the fact of the matter is, is that there has been an incredibly rich, rich evangelical pouring here, or outpouring, I would say that has contributed at at the very high intellectual levels. And I think that this is something that a lot of folks don't realize. Let's listen to what Dr. Jensen and how he describes being a Reformed Evangelical. Yes, there's a a saying that I love from uh, an ancient, ancient historian, namely he lived in the 20s, 1920s, T.R. Glover, uh, and he talks about the ancient world and talks about the way in which the Christians outloved, outlived and outthought their contemporaries. And in my experience of Reformed Evangelicalism, uh, particularly since the Second World War, Uh, It has been a highly intellectual movement. Uh, It has not shirked the intellectual task. Uh, It may have done it better. It would be good to have more thinkers. But we've certainly seen a flowering of evangelical thought and thought in understanding the Bible, uh, thought in systematic theology, thought in connection with the world. Uh, Now, it's 
it's integral to the evangelical reformed evangelical understanding that we give ourselves to the life of the mind uh, and that as well as outliving and outloving but the life of the mind is going to be essential for carrying the gospel into the future and that's why I say no I'm glad to be a reformed evangelical Anglican that's what I want to be uh, and that I think is the is the way in which the gospel is more likely to be carried into the future than by some other expressions of Christianity notice what he said and, and this was such a great great quote he said that Christians outloved, outlived, and outthought their contemporaries. Now notice something he says. In the last 50 to 60 years, he talks about this flowering of reform, reformed evangelical intellectual thought. Now, I, having gone to a reformed theological seminary, as well as Knox Theological Seminary, I can tell you that there is just this incredible, incredible tradition of reformed thinking that frankly, when a lot of people get introduced to it, introduced to it especially young guys, when they really get into reformed theology, it's almost as if, uh, you know, they go nuts, they go crazy for a while, and because they're they're discovering answers to questions that perhaps in other traditions that they were a part of never heard. And you know, there's this idea of being a, a caged uh, a kid, the cage stage Calvinist, and that is is where uh, when a person first learns about Calvinism, you, you should lock them up because they become so obnoxious. But when we move past the obnoxious stage of it, I love how he talked about how Christians outloved and outlived, but also outthought. And that is the rich work, I think, of the evangelical Anglican tradition. And that is, is that we are working hard and tirelessly to provide answers to the questions that our culture is asking. And our culture is ripped apart today, particularly upon the issues of human sexuality, as to what is right and what is wrong in terms of identity. How are we to identify ourselves? Are there these multiple identities that we can choose from, like a buffet? Or are we or is our identity tied to our biological nature? These are fundamental questions that reformed evangelicals are working on. And uh, it's certainly a question that I'm asking and have been working on for a number of years. But if we didn't have that tradition, I think that we would live in a poverty of intellectual thought, particularly, and we would be uh, outthought by all of those who are in these secular and liberal thinking institutions. And so I think it's something important here to recognize this positive aspect of what Reformed evangelicals are doing and how they're contributing to the church. But as I alluded to at the beginning of this uh, episode, there are different expressions in Anglicanism. Now, before I play this next clip, when I first entered into the landscape of North America, uh, particularly the, the Anglican realignment, I had no idea about these different camps that were expressing themselves in the Anglican church. And particularly, I'm talking about three of them, although there are far more than that, as I've, as I've learned. That is that these three major ideas or three major camps, which are Anglo-Catholic, Charismatic, and Evangelical. And when I first entered into this Anglican movement, now granted I entered into the this movement vis-a-vis -vis the Anglican mission, uh, they were talking about this idea of being three streams. That is Anglo-Catholic, they didn't use that word, it was just Catholic. Um, 
but it was pretty obvious that they were emphasizing the Anglo-Catholic portion of Catholic. Uh, then there was charismatic and then evangelical. So we were three streams. And, you know, as I began to participate in the life of this movement, it, it you know, it became pretty obvious to me that it, the Anglo-Catholic and charismatic aspect seemed to be more predominant to me than the evangelical component, particularly as I would describe the reformed evangelical component. And as I quickly discovered there that tension by other rectors and other people you know that tension was being felt by a lot of people and so over the last couple of years there's been this tension between two camps really the anglo-catholic camp and the evangelical camp where there's been this struggle uh to define each other and define oneself and so when we sat down with Dr. Jensen, we asked him, you know, how do we work in this kind of environment? And, you know, here's what he said. Over the years, of course, and uh, particularly in the earlier stage, uh, uh, reformed evangelical Anglicans, and of course that's not just Sydney Diocese, I know you're not suggesting that, but this is a, a movement which is uh, traceable, I think, all the way through Anglican church history uh, and, and precedes Anglo-Catholicism uh, by a long way, uh, this movement, um, which is found, as I say, in many, many places in the Anglican world, uh, has had to define itself vis-a-vis um, -vis the Anglo-Catholicism of the 19th century, uh, but also more recently the charismatic movement. Uh, the business of defining ourselves has been painful um, with uh, many long discussions and, and some broken friendships. Uh, but necessary uh, because it seems to me vis-a-vis -vis the charismatic movement within the Anglican churches for example it seems to me that if you're looking to the long-term future of 50 years 100 years uh, then it will be again uh, what you may call a reformed evangelical Anglicanism which has the long-term future now uh, that being so and having said that let me say that when you're talking about connections between Anglo-Catholics or uh, Charismatics, however, you're talking about distinction between those who profess the faith, between brothers and sisters. And uh, a number, of course, when I meet Anglo-Catholics, I find so often, as in the original Anglo-Catholicism, a deep and powerful devotion to Christ and to the Scriptures. And likewise with Charismatics. Charismatic Anglicans. Uh, there may be some who have drifted far off, but most of the ones I meet, uh, we're certainly talking the same language when we talk about Christ and the Scriptures. Uh, long ago, um, J. Gresham Machen wrote a um, seminal book called Christianity and Liberalism. And uh, as you know, Machen was a uh, very distinctly a reformed theologian in the Presbyterian persuasion. Um, and in that book, he identifies liberalism as the problem and he talks positively, to the surprise perhaps of many, of Roman Catholicism uh, and of other expressions of um, Protestant Christianity, uh, which he may not agree with, Arminianism, uh, which he may not agree with, but he sees them as being inside the family. 
And one of the things I want to say to you is that uh, in the in the world today, uh, where so much has either become entirely secularist or in the churches has become liberal to the extent that it is no longer recognisably Christian, then the alliances that we form and the respect we show to brothers and sisters from the Anglo-Catholic and the charismatic wings of the church is very important. And I have been, I have been blessed by and uh, admiring of uh, uh, brothers and sisters from those persuasions uh, as they have resisted the inroads of secularist Christianity and have uh, in, in a very, very costly way. So I don't, for one moment, and neither do they, uh, suggest that we should all just get, a, get together in a theological amalgam. Uh, on the contrary, but on the other hand, uh, we need to recognise the, the reality of their faith and the reality that, they, that it is based uh, on the Bible, uh, which is something that we share profoundly. Wasn't that refreshing to hear him say that, look, you know, even though there are differences between evangelical, Anglo-Catholic and charismatics, you know, if we to look at those three and kind of delineate between the three of them, he says, look, it's important to realize that we're all in the family. That is that we all share common common themes, common doctrines and points of agreement that we can gather together and create alliances because the real issue isn't the distinction necessarily between evangelicals and Anglo-Catholics, although it's important to acknowledge them or even between evangelicals, Anglo-Catholics and charismatics, again, acknowledging that there are differences I love how he quoted Machen in Machen's book, um, Christianity and Liberalism, that the real issue isn't so much our, you know, theological differences, but the real issue are those who call themselves Christian, i.e. liberals, who represent liberal Christianity, but when you actually examine what they believe, there is nothing orthodox about their beliefs. That is that they are representing a different faith entirely. And that point, I think, is so critical because as we turn in this episode, what we're going to hear really is how this conversation between those who are orthodox and those who are not Un, or, or those who are not orthodox or unorthodox, between these two camps, we're going to see how the role of scripture and the interpretation of scripture um, has impacted and has actually uh, impacted the Anglican church globally. And so that actually leads us to the next clip. So, you know, why do Reformed evangelicals place their emphasis, their emphasis on scripture? Well, let's take a listen to what he had to say. I think what the Lord has done uh, in these last 50 or 60 years in which uh, Reformed Evangelical Anglicanism has, with a lot of other evangelicalism around the world, has uh, been very busy indeed on, on thinking, on working, on bringing the mind uh, to bear. I think what the Lord has done is he's raised up now a considerable body of writings and a considerable body of people who are deeply committed to expounding the Bible in the contemporary world. And one of the things which, uh, if you say, what is our contribution to this global movement, which contains people of uh, many different persuasions, uh, all of whom should be honoured, but the thing that I think we can bring as uh, Reformed Evangelical Anglicans 
is a deep commitment to the exposition of scripture uh, and an insistence that the scriptures be taught uh, and furthermore a way of teaching scripture which acknowledges the sufficiency of scripture which acknowledges the unity of scripture and which acknowledges the clarity of scripture i'll take these in turn uh, one of the difficulties that is present with us just at this very moment in the Anglican Church is that uh, people are saying, right, the, uh, the extreme liberals are wrong, of course, uh, but so too are the extreme conservatives who wish to, that's, uh, that's Gafcon, in case you didn't realise, uh, who wish to sort of divide the church all the time, which is not true, by the way, but they, that's what's said. And we, it's we who are in the middle. We are who are in the middle are the right people and what we are saying is well look the bible is not clear about this subject of human sexuality uh, and therefore we must respect all opinions this issue of the clarity of scripture has become the ground of contest uh, because if you deny the clarity of scripture about such a subject or generally you are destroying the authority of scripture because what happens is that if you are destroying the clarity of scripture, you are diminishing and ultimately destroying the authority of scripture. Now, th in this particular instance, when we're dealing with the scriptures teaching on human sexuality is absolutely a crucial point because after all, the Bible is clear on this subject. The, uh, the test of it, one test of it would be to say, has it ever been understood in a different way? No, it hasn't. Uh, does the Roman Catholics understand it? Do the Orthodox understand it? No. Christians all around the world read their Bible and can see what it's saying. Therefore, to say that the Scriptures are unclear on this is to fly in the face of reality. If you can get away with that, you can get away with anything. Indeed, it's easier to prove that the biblical witness on human sexuality is that man and woman in marriage is where sex should be then it would be to prove the trinity from the bible give up the clarity you've given up the authority and so it's it's the ability of the reformed evangelical anglicans to have thought these issues through and to deliver them into the discussion which is going to be one of the major contributions which we make as well as what you may say expository preaching that respects the unity of scripture, biblical theology as we've learned to call it, uh, and the authority and inspiration of scripture. As we've thought these issues through, so we will put them on the table and they will be a contribution to the big subject. Now notice that he places his emphasis on expository preaching in the role of biblical theology. That is, is that we are looking at the unity of Scripture and trying to understand the message of the Bible for today. I mean, that is the actual heartbeat of the Reformed Evangelical. So when the Reformed Evangelical Anglican is sitting down and he's listening to um, folks that come from a liberal side and they're talking and it's essentially what they're doing is tearing apart Scripture, there is a fundamental presupposition at work within the Reformed Evangelical Anglican that's saying, wait a minute, you're, you're undermining the role of Scripture and therefore if you are undermining the role of Scripture, you are undermining the entire 
entire faith. Because outside of Scripture, where do we get our revelation? And that goes all the way back to what Dr. Jensen said at the very beginning of this episode, that the 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 role of education or the role of understanding the Bible is to know God. And if we cannot know God or because we cannot trust scripture, then how can we know God? And this has actually led to a biblical crisis. So if understanding the message of scripture is so vital for the church, then I think we can also better understand the schism that has taken place within the Anglican Church and how this has led to the development of something called the Global Anglican Future Conference, or GAFCON. So notice, uh, let, let me let Dr. Jensen explain what has happened with this biblical crisis. You see, what we're dealing with, to come back to the question, what we're dealing with is a crisis of biblical authority. The Bible is the, is the way in which Christ rules his church. And to contest biblical authority is to contest the lordship of Christ. It goes that deep. The specific issue, of course, is sexuality. It could have been something else, but it is sexuality. No surprise there, because if you read your Bible, you'll see how central sexuality is to the human experience and how easily it becomes idolatry. Romans chapter 1, just read for yourself. So not surprising. Uh, the crisis, of course, um, someone once said, Os Guinness, the, uh, the author, the sociologist, Christian sociologist, a great man, said at the first GAFCON con uh, conference that uh, it was as if the North Americans had exploded an atomic bomb and the fallout was going all around the world. Thank you, North America, <laughs> but thank you for those who have resisted. Uh, GAFCON it, uh, came out of an explosion. Uh, it was the Episcopal Church in North America who decided to uh, have a, as a bishop a man who is living with another man in a sexual relationship. Uh, this, although they were warned not to do this, although uh, it was perfectly clear what the vast majority of the rest of the Anglicans around the world felt about this, we knew that, uh, the uh, American church went ahead and did it, thus causing what may be, I fear not, I hope not, but, I, but what may be an irreparable division in the Anglican church worldwide. Um, for five years, the rest of the Anglicans tried to get the Episcopal Church to change and to come back. For five years, they sought to get the Archbishop of Canterbury to offer some sort of discipline by withdrawing his fellowship and support for them. All these things came to nothing. So that when the great Lambeth Conference was being held in 2008, a 10-year conference of all bishops, when that was being held in 2008, 300 of the 700 bishops, I think it is, or maybe a little more, but anyhow, 300 bishops stayed away, including me. And we set up a different conference. We set up a conference in Jerusalem. And so the Global Anglican Fellowship of, uh, uh, was, was born in Jerusalem that year, and they put out a statement called the Jerusalem Declaration, which I think is one of the most noble and important statements. It will go down, I think, into church history. Already it's being included in books of statements. It's a very significant statement of the way in which so many Anglicans wanted to be confessional Anglicans, uh, wanted to confess the faith in this form, and particularly wanted to stand for the authority of the Bible. So GAFCON is about standing for the authority of the Bible. It's about summoning people to repentance. And those who cannot find themselves in a denomination that has repented, leaving that denomination 
and then those folk who have left the denomination being recognised and authenticated as true Anglicans, even though they've left their nominal Anglican church. So as Dr. Jensen explained, when Scripture was undermined in the Anglican church, this led to this crisis, which resulted in this development of this, of the well, I'm going to call it a schism, because that's exactly what it is, although some people are afraid to use that, but the schism that has occurred in the Global Communion and the development of an alternative conference called the Global Anglican Futures Conference. And out of that conference stands a document, which I affirm, and where we affirm at Redeemer Anglican Church, called the Jerusalem Declaration, which is essentially a confession that points back to the um, confessions of the Anglican Church, uh, none other than the 39 Articles, the Book of Common Prayer of 1662, and the Ordinal. And so, you know, that actually raises the question, because a lot of Anglicans, they would refer to themselves as liturgical, but not necessarily confessional. So, you know, what is confessional Christianity? So, before I play this clip with Dr. Jensen, let me just try to explain, you know, what a confession uh, what a confessional Christian is. You know, a confession is simply a statement of beliefs, usually pointing back to scripture. Confessions became hugely important during the 16th and 17th century of Protestantism because, you know, as people were leaving the Roman Catholic Church, you know, folks needed to know, well, you know, what is it that we believe? And so confessions like the Belgic Confession, um, uh, the uh, Concord Confession, um, I think I got that wrong. It's the confession I'm thinking that came out of the Lutheran Church. Um, but even into the 17th century, the Westminster Confession, the London Baptist Confession, there were all of these different uh, documents that were written and were called confessions because people were confessing what they believed. That is the doctrines of the church. Well, you know, one of the earliest confessions that was written was actually written by Anglicans and it was written in the 16th century. It was actually a document that was finalized in 1571 and the, and the title of that document was called the 39 Articles of Religion. And the 39 Articles of Religion formed the basis of Anglican doctrine, and they were affirmed uh, in 1662, um, and they uh, the Book of Common Prayer was affirmed in 1662, and it, they became the foundational documents of the Anglican Church, and that has not changed. Um, they can be ignored, like in the Episcopal Church, where they place the 39, uh, 39 articles into a, se a section called the historical documents, not necessarily authoritative documents, but... I'll let Episcopalians fight over that one. But you get the idea here is that confessional Anglicanism introduces this idea that these are the doctrines that we agree with. And what's so interesting about the 39 Articles is how Protestant they are and how Reformed they are. And uh, even today, they are still held as the standard of doc uh, doctrine in the Anglican Church, and that is what the Jerusalem Declaration is uh, explaining. So here's Dr. Jensen talking about the Jerusalem Declaration and being a confessional Anglican. It's always puzzled me that uh, there are those in the Anglican Church who, who shy away from the idea of confession and, of course, would rather the 39 Articles didn't exist even. Uh, it always puzzles me because a confession, it seems to me, it was a very helpful thing indeed. Uh, and I always think of the Anglican Church as being confessional because of the Articles. I know that opinions differ on that point. 
um, and uh, that's okay, but, but that's how I see it. A confession does two things. It, it displays to the watching world who you are and what you stand for, and it unites. It brings together people under this confession. Uh, it also sharpens matters theologically in a wild and woolly world where anything, anything goes and anything passes for Anglicanism. Uh, to take this, for example, the 39 Articles are Augustinian in their doctrine of sin. Uh, you can look it up and you can find that it says that uh, the concupiscence hath of itself the nature of sin, which sounds a bit like um, Shakespeare gone wrong. But what it's getting at there is that even evil desire, even desire, epithumia in the Greek, uh, if it is evil, is evil in itself. We are that sinful. So it has a very, uh, it, it, it views human nature as being profoundly in the wrong. Now, not all Christians do view human nature in that way. The Roman Catholic Church certainly doesn't. Uh, so here, our church, the Anglican Church, is reformed in its uh, perspective and Augustinian in its doctrine of sin. And this is enormously important because of the impact that um, having a different view has on justification by faith alone and upon your doctrine of the atonement and the sufficiency and completeness of the atoning work of Christ. All these things are bound together. Uh, and you then find the expression in the prayer book. So in order to be, in order for us to understand who we are and our identity and who we're standing with, uh, the articles form a very important confessional role. But you'll notice that the Jerusalem Declaration uh, says that we affirm, uh, we uphold, I should say, the 39 articles as containing the true doctrine of the church, agreeing with God's word and as authoritative for Anglicans today. And so the Jerusalem Declaration uh, is confessional, but it commits us to this more important, if you like, confession that lies behind it. It challenges us to bring our thinking into line with the thinking of the Bible at a time when the world around us is so very different from that. So uh, a great deal of what passes for religion today, uh, the sort of spirituality we see around us, is, uh, is Pelagian. It's based on a very sunny idea of the human capacity uh, it's based on a can-do philosophy. It's based on a false anthropology. Now that's true in the world. It's true in the spirituality of the world. Alas, it's true in some of the churches in the world. But we Anglicans are not like that. We bear witness to something that's from the Bible itself about the, about the, uh, the deep fallenness of human nature. And I believe that's not just true to the Bible. I think it's true to our experience and I think without understanding it, we're bound uh, to find that our societies go badly wrong. You know, I loved how he said at the very end of that, he said, you know, we Anglicans are not like that. We bear witness to the fallenness of human nature. And I might add to Dr. Jensen's argument, that is also why we insist that the remedy of such fallenness is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so when you look at the 39 articles, you look at the Jerusalem Declaration, 
You look at all of these things that contribute to our understanding of what Anglican belief is, what you see emerging is this strong, strong, reformed evangelical belief system that Presbyterians can identify with, that Baptists could identify with. Frankly, there are many different kinds of uh, evangelicals out there. But we could all come together and say, yes, these are the truths that we hold to. Particularly what I would say, that is that salvation by faith alone through Jesus Christ, which you're going to hear in just a minute. So one of the things that I love to do when I interview people, particularly Christians from overseas, one of the questions that I always ask, and I've done this in several different interviews over the years with different people in programs that I've produced, I love to ask this question, and that is, what is your encouragement to North American Anglicans? Take a listen to what he says, because I think it's fascinating. Well, nothing I say will come as a surprise, but it still may be useful to say. Um, The Reformed Evangelical Anglican Witness is a witness to uh, significant learning in theology, uh, reformational religion, to the Christ alone, Bible alone, faith alone, to the glory of God alone, of the Reformation, Uh, It's a witness which respects the mind and the heart because it's very much uh, the witness which calls forth uh, conversion and faith and assurance, repentance and all those things. And so I would say um, uh, take courage, recognise that you're part of a very important long-standing and multifarious strong stream of Christian thinking. Don't see yourselves as merely a strange aberration, but recognize how deeply Anglicanism has shaped you. And uh, with charity and love and recognizing that there are others too who have suffered for the same faith, uh, model how to bear a witness to God and his word in the midst of this generation so that our Christian faith will be preserved into the generations yet to come. And with that ending, we come to the end of this episode. You know, I was so encouraged by Dr. Jensen, and I hope that this encouraged you. I hope that this episode at least introduces you to the form of Anglicanism that I have grown to love, and that is being a Reformed Evangelical Anglican. I actually like to call it a Reformed Anglican Evangelical, Um, but nonetheless, however you organize the words or arrange the words, what's really at the heart of being a Reformed Evangelical is the gospel, and that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, and as Dr. Jensen uh, is, so am I. I am convinced that it is indeed a key part, not the total part, but a key part of the future. And I do believe that Reformed evangelicals are going to have very important contributions to make in the troubling times ahead. I don't think that we've seen anything yet, but I do believe because we have the gospel of Jesus Christ that we will always have an answer to whatever the world brings to the table because we serve the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. He is the King, he is our sovereign King, and he is bringing his kingdom. And one day, 
we hold to the fact that Jesus Christ will come again and the world that we know today will no longer exist. Once again, thank you so much for listening to this podcast. If you would do me a favor and would you just take a moment and go to iTunes and rate this podcast, this helps get the word out to others who may benefit uh, from these episodes and from this program. And now let me just give you this benediction. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of Holy Spirit be with you in the city. Take care. Listening to a Verve Creative Production.